Well, good afternoon. Welcome to Zoe Community Church. Uh, I was drinking water right before, or during the first song, and then I spilled it all on the front of my shirt. So I really appreciated James's longer prayer for multiple reasons. I was like, keep going, my friend, please. Um, if my shirt really was wet still, I would have introduced myself as Eric. Uh, but I'm Jesse. I'm one of the pastors here. Good afternoon. If you're new or visiting, we want to welcome you to Zoe Church. We're going through a series in 1 Samuel. So if you could turn there in your Bibles, 1 Samuel, we're in chapter 19. 1 Samuel 19. <clears throat> and we're spending time going through this entire book, and we're going through 2 Samuel as well. That's the plan. In Hebrew, First and Second Samuel were just one book, okay? Just one Samuel. Uh, but then they didn't fit on two scrolls in the Greek, so they split it up in the middle. But we're going through both books. And we're kind of going a little fast for us. We're going about a chapter at a time. And part of that is to keep the flow of the narrative going. We want to make sure that we don't get lost uh, just looking at the leaves and miss out on the entire forest. So we're going to read all of chapter 19. We'll pray and then we'll get into it. 1 Samuel 19, verse 1. And Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told Saul, Saul, my father seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are. And I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. Verse 4. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine, and the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it, and you rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. And there was war again. And David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow so that they fled before him. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand. And David was playing the lyre. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall. And David fled and escaped that night. Verse 11. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning. But Michal, David's wife, told him, If you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michal let David down through the window, and he fled away and escaped. Michal took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with the clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, He is sick. And Saul sent the messengers to see David, saying, Bring him up to me in the bed, that I may kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed, with a pillow of goat's hair at its head. Saul said to Michal, Why have you deceived me thus, and let my enemy go, so that he has escaped? And Michal answered Saul, uh, answered Saul, He said to me, Let me go, why should I kill you? Now Saul, uh, now David, excuse me, fled and escaped, and he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and lived at Naioth. And it was told Saul, Behold, David is at Naioth in Ramah. And Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying and Samuel standing as head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. 
When it was told Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again a third time, and they also prophesied. Then he himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that is in Siku, and he asked, Where are Samuel and David? And one said, Behold, they are at Nioth and Ramah. And he went there to Nioth and Ramah. And the Spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Nioth and Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets? This is the word of God. Let's pray together. God, we come before your holy word this afternoon. And God, we ask that you would speak to us words of conviction, words that challenge us, but also words that comfort us. God, we know that your word does not return empty or void, that your word is always living and active. So God, I pray that you would help us to receive what you have for us. The problem is never in your word. The problem is usually in us. God, we're distracted. We're hard-hearted. So God, I pray that you would open up our eyes to see, that you would open our ears to hear. I pray that you would open our hearts to take in everything that you have for us today. And I pray, God, that we would leave here transformed. We would leave here praising you as you deserve. God, we lift this time up to you. We pray that you would honor your son. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Amen. Have you ever been stood up before? You know what that is, being stood up? It's when you make plans with someone like a date or something like that. And you decide that you're going to go out to such and such a place and you uh, mutually agree. And then you, you get ready and you're excited and you're nervous and you get dressed up and you get there early because this is important to you. And you're waiting there and you're waiting there. And then that person doesn't show up. I read this story online about this guy who got stood up in high school and he had this crush on a girl And uh, I think a lot of high schoolers can relate to this, but he had a crush on her. He finally got the nerve to ask her out on a date. They were going to go see a movie. She said yes. And he got all dressed up. He sprayed out cologne, you know, all those things that high schoolers do. He got to the movie early, and the guy at the ticket counter was like, ticket for one? He says, no, ticket for two. Thank you very much. He buys the tickets, and he's waiting, and he's waiting. And he's there early, so he's not concerned that she's not there yet. But he's waiting and he's waiting. The movie's like in five minutes. The movie's in negative five minutes. She's late. So he calls her on her phone and it goes straight to voicemail. So he's like, oh, okay, I don't, maybe, she, you know, something happened. He keeps calling her every five minutes or so. She doesn't pick up. It keeps going to voicemail. So finally he decides, I guess I'll just go into the movie and I'll wait watching the movie. So right when he decides to go into the theater to watch the movie, guess who shows up? Not her, but her mom. Because her mom found out that she was going to stand him up, and she felt bad, so she decided to come to the movie to pay him back for the ticket that he surely bought. So she's there, and he's like, uh, she's like, hey, sorry, my daughter doesn't want to go on this date with you, uh, but I guess we can still watch the movie. So the mom decides to watch the movie with him, which is very weird. Uh, and then she just gives him the money. She says, here, take this money. Sorry about my daughter. And then she leaves. And he said, not only was it sad, okay, it would have been sad if none of that happened, but he became sad and the most uncomfortable thing that he has ever experienced in his life. Now, here's the thing about being stood up. 
Okay, and we see it in this short story that I just said. It's not just about being left alone. It's not just about wasting money. Her mom could show up and keep you company and pay you back for the money that you spent. But it's still sad, maybe even sadder. Because the thing about being stood up is someone told you that they were going to be there and you believed them and they didn't show up. You had expectations, you made plans, and rightfully so. You were nervous, you were excited, you were flying high. And because of that, because you're on such a high, the letdown is even worse. I mean, it would have been better if you never made plans in the first place. Now, why are we talking about this? Well, there's a play called Waiting for Godot. I don't know if you ever read it. It's not that popular, I would say, in kind of normal circles, but in literary circles, it's very famous. And in this play, basically nothing happens. There are two characters, Vladimir and Estragon, and the whole play is them just talking pretty much the whole time because they're waiting for this guy named Godot to show up. So the entire play, they're talking and they're waiting and they're waiting and they're waiting, and guess what? Godot never shows. And one of the most popular interpretations of this play is that Godot, and it's spelled G-O-D-O-T, is actually supposed to represent God. And what this play is about is the common experience that a lot of people say that they have, that they're waiting for God to show up in whatever situation. They're waiting and they're waiting and they're waiting, and God seems to stand them up. See, what we're talking about today is being stood up by God. Now, that might sound sacrilegious. That might sound like something you can't even say in church. I didn't say it's something that actually happens, but what I am saying is that this is something that a lot of people feel like they experience. A lot of Christians, in their own words, they are true believers. They are flying high. They they believe in Christ. They give their life to God. They're nervous. They're excited, but they believe that God is real, and they think that they're entering into something completely different, right? Because before, they were living their lives completely on their own, Right? They had made a mess of things. Things weren't going good. Uh, but now they realize they need to give their life to Christ, and they know that Jesus is going to take the wheel, and things are going to be better. That's the expectation. So they make plans accordingly. But then someone accuses them of something they didn't do at work, and they get fired even though they're innocent. But then they picked up the phone one Sunday afternoon after church, and they're all happy because they're going to church and they're worshiping God. They feel close to God, but then they get this phone call, and the person on the other side says, sorry, there's been an accident, and everything comes crumbling down. Sometimes after surrendering all to the Lord, they have the worst stretch of depression that they've ever had. And in those moments, they felt like their prayers had gone straight to voicemail, and they want to know from people like me, pastors, what's going on? I thought things were going to be different. I actually thought things were going to be better because I was following God. I was waiting for God to show up to save the day because he promised I will never leave you nor forsake you, Hebrews 13, 5. And yet they feel like now that in their moments of need that God isn't there. And in a sense, it's worse than when before they didn't believe in God because before there was no expectation. Now they expect him to come through And they want to know, where is he? And maybe this is your story. Maybe you would never say it out loud, but maybe this is how you felt sometimes, kind of in the dark night of the soul. Even 
during some trials that you've been going through recently. You've wondered why it seems like bad things happen to you even more now that you're a Christian. Why it seems like sometimes your prayers aren't going anywhere. Why it seems like the more you try to follow God, the harder your life gets, not better. Maybe you just wonder why God doesn't seem as involved in your life as you thought he'd be. See, we're in a text, and 1 Samuel 19 is kind of the other side of 1 Samuel 18. So if you're here last week, you kind of know where this might be going a little bit. But things are starting to turn in David's life. David is the king. He's the new king. He's been anointed. He is the man after God's own heart. He is the hero of the story from here on out. He's the one that God is with. And yet here it seems like He's been abandoned, left to fend for himself. He's at the mercy of evil and, you could say, crazy men. And there's something in here for us that God wants us to see about who he is. And there's something in here for us about what it means when he says he'll be there for us. See, if you've been wondering about that, this is the chapter for you. So let's get into it. We'll break down this text under three headings as we do. The first section we'll call the anointed, the anointed, which will teach us a little bit, uh, a little bit more about our assumptions, really teach us the question, our assumptions about how God works. Verse one. And Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. Okay, you could stop there. Okay, that's not even the the whole first verse, but this one sentence that starts off this chapter sets the tone for the rest of the book, the rest of 1 Samuel. This is how things are going to go from here on out until Saul is out of the picture. From now on, David is going to be running for his life, literally, constantly in danger. This could be surprising considering how the book of 1 Samuel has unfolded thus far. Now, I know some of you are new, some of you who joined us like halfway through But let me just put it out there, and for those of you who have been here from the beginning, you've seen this. But throughout 1 Samuel so far, it's really been either or. Almost every story has been either or. And what I mean by that is either you're living for God, you're on his side, you're repentant, you have faith, and God gives you victory. Or you're on the other side, you're unfaithful, there's sin in your life, you're not following God, you're not living for him, and God lets you be defeated. We see this again and again and again. The Israelites, they didn't have true faith. They had like this superstition in God in his ark. They bring out the ark of the covenant into battle. They think they're going to win for sure, but they don't actually believe in God or have a relationship with him, and God lets them lose. But then on the flip side, Samuel, a little while later, leads them in repentance, and they actually repent, and there's revival, and they turn back to God, and they don't even have to really lift a finger to win. God gives them the victory. We see this again and again in the book, right? Eli is unfaithful. His sons are unfaithful. Therefore, they are all killed. Jonathan is faithful. He has trust in God, and he goes up against dozens of guys basically by himself, and he wins against all odds. If you're on God's side, you win. If you're not on God's side, you lose. Seems like the formula is simple. When the faith goes up, the blessings come down. Just trust God, and you won't ever have a problem. And we saw maybe the pinnacle of this a couple chapters ago 
when a young shepherd boy who really has no business facing off as the champion of Israel goes up against the Philistine champion Goliath, a giant covered in bronze armor, and he wins with a single stone from a slingshot. So we're in this chapter And it starts with this sentence, and Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. And the question that we need to be asking ourselves is, what did David do? Where did he go wrong? Because everywhere he's gone, everything he's done has been touched by the blessing of God. And now all of a sudden, the most powerful man in Israel wants his head. Why does David have to go through this? I mean, if he was really faithful, if God was really with him, it would seem God would give him easy victory over Saul first, right? And see, what 1 Samuel is doing here, it's taking us to the next level theologically. It's not that what everything, it's not that everything that happened beforehand is wrong or taught us the wrong lessons. It's that there's more for us to understand. In fact, think about it like this. Think about the sound of music. You ever see that movie? It's a great movie. It's a musical. Um, I know some of you love this movie. Um, but in The Sound of Music, toward the end, uh, Maria, Julie Andrews, right? she falls in love with Captain Von Trapp, right? Is, is this a spoiler? I mean, it came out like 50, like 80 years ago. I don't know how long. It came out a long time ago. If you haven't watched it by now, it's not my fault. Okay, so they fall in love. Now, she's the governess. She falls in love with him. He falls in love with her, and she finds love, right? And they sing this song together called... Something good. You know this song? Uh, and I'm going to read to you a line from this song. And they repeat it many times. But this is what she sings. She says, nothing comes from nothing. Nothing ever could. So somewhere in my youth or my childhood, I must have done something good. And the reason why she's singing this song, uh, I'm going to have James come up and sing it. No, I'm just kidding. But the reason why she's singing this song is because the way that she views her life It's almost like karma, right? I have this amazing blessing in my life. I found love. This is so great. What did I ever do to deserve this? I must have done something pretty good because this is pretty good. It's either or. What goes around comes around. And the thing is, okay, like I said, 1 Samuel thus far has shown that if you are on God's side, if God is for you, then none can stand against you. In our Proverbs series this summer, we saw that you do reap what you sow. We talked about this. If you're a bad friend, don't expect to have a lot of good friends in your life. There is cause and effect in this world that God has made. But the problem is, we come to 1 Samuel 19, and we see someone who is a man after God's own heart, who is so in tune with God, who is so connected with God, who has so much faith that he can defeat a giant. And now he is running for his life. We see David And we know that he doesn't deserve this. And that's the whole point of what Jonathan brings up in this first section. If you look again, Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are. And I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. And listen to this. Okay, listen to what Jonathan actually says to Saul. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. 
For he took his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine, and the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it, and you rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? So Jonathan points to the fact that David doesn't deserve this. I mean, he risked his own life to save you. He's only done good to you. David hasn't sinned. David's done right. He uses reasonable argument to persuade Saul by telling him about all the good things that David has done. He's innocent. As a matter of fact, not only is he innocent, but he deserves better. I mean, he is the hero of this country. Now, on a bit of a side note, wouldn't it be pretty great for your personal life if you had a personal David, I mean, a Jonathan with you all the time? You can't stand up for yourself, but you have a guy who just shows up and talks about how great you were in the past. I thought about this when I was reading this. Like, wouldn't it be nice if I had Jonathan with me 24-7 to talk to, you know, my spouse, hypothetically, right, or to talk to Eric and James? Like, remember all those times that Jesse was, like, staying up late to work on this stuff, you know? Like, give him a break, right? Think about all the times he's come in early. Think about that one time he did the dishes. Come on, please. Wouldn't it be cool to have Jonathan following me around, arguing all your merits? But the thing is, what he's doing here, he's not blowing smoke, okay? He's not making things up. We read the stories. Saul saw it with his own eyes. He's just reminding him of things that actually happened, things that are undeniable. Even Saul, he can't deny that David has done nothing to deserve this kind of punishment. Now, you got to flip the perspective a little bit here for a second. Imagine you're David. Put yourself in his sandals for a second. You're serving Saul. You're playing the liar. He kind of freaks out. But basically, things have been good. And then Jonathan shows up and he says, listen, you got to go into hiding because my father wants to kill you. I mean, you were just minding your own business, right? You were just tending the sheep, just living with your family, having a good time, writing psalms, living for God. But then Samuel the prophet shows up. He says, you're going to be the new king instead of Saul. He anoints your head with oil. The spirit of God rushes upon you in this special way that you never had before. And you think that, okay, life was good. Life was fine. Now life's going to get even better. And then Saul calls you to the palace and you're a little scared. But then it's to be a servant, to play the liar. You're recognized as having great musical chops. So you start playing the liar. Saul loves it. He makes you part of his bodyguard. So think you're like, okay, well, I mean, this is pretty good. Maybe it'll be a peaceful transition of power. And then Goliath shows up and you are the only one who stands up against him and you defeat him. God gives you the victory and everyone loves you. Things are great. You're the Lord's anointed. You marry the princess, the king's daughter. You win victory after victory. They write songs about you. Life is good the way it should be when God is on your side. Then As I said, Saul throws the spear at you, and you're like, okay, well, that was weird. (laughs) That was an aberration. Okay, maybe he's just going through something right now, but, I mean, he wasn't in his right mind. That's why I'm playing the liar for him in the first place. So you go home, and you think, okay, what am I going to do about this? But things should be fine, right? I killed Goliath. And then Jonathan shows up and says, listen, my dad wants to kill you. In fact, it's not even a secret. He's told all his servants. You see that in the text? He told Jonathan and all his servants. I mean, this is not a crime of passion. There's a difference between a crime of passion where in the moment you get kind of into this rage versus a premeditated murder. But here Saul has jumped over the line. 
Saul is ready to do whatever it takes to end his own son-in-law. And maybe you can say, okay, David, but you have to understand human nature. Saul, you know, he's jealous. You were too good. You won too many victories. You shouldn't have rubbed it in his face. But David could go back and say, I didn't. David never bought into his own hype. David always honored Saul. David hasn't gloated. He's never disrespected his king. All he's done is serve faithfully and humbly. So what are we seeing? We're seeing someone who has done the very best that they can to do the right thing. And it doesn't seem to be working out. What we're seeing here is that sometimes doing the right things actually leads to more hardship, more trials, and more suffering. See, Christian, the first thing we got to understand that First Samuel is leading us into, when I say we got to level up in theology, is that sometimes it's not either or. Sometimes you reap some stuff you didn't sow and vice versa. Karma is not how God operates. See, the thing is, we can't manipulate God. If we have an incomplete understanding of God, we might think that we can. Right? Imagine, right, you're up for a promotion at work. So you're like, I got to get my life in order, right? I got to pray. I got to make sure that I ask people for wise counsel. I got to make sure that I'm really leaning upon the Lord and you interview and you feel like it goes great. And then they don't give you the job and they don't say why. What do you think in that moment? Okay, maybe I wasn't depending upon God enough. Maybe I didn't do the right things. Maybe somewhere in my childhood or youth, I did something bad. It's easy to fall into this either or you reap what you sow. Everything I did leads to everything that happens to me. But what we see here is that God can't be reduced to a simple formula like this. We shouldn't expect him to bless us like a vending machine when we put in enough faith coins or good work coins or dependence coins. Sometimes God has other plans. And here's where we need to turn it back around on us again for a moment. Have you ever given up on doing the right thing because it didn't seem to be leading to the right result? Have you given up on doing the right thing because you felt like it wasn't leading to where it should go? For example, have you given up on a relationship because the other person wasn't responding in the way that the Bible said they should? I gave them a gentle answer. They still gave me wrath. I asked for forgiveness. I humbled myself. And they came down even harder upon me. Where is my exaltation, Lord? Maybe I tried to serve them and to change. Maybe in my marriage, right? I tried. I tried the right thing, right? I tried to be different. I tried to not argue. I tried to watch my tone. I tried to watch my words. And it didn't work at all. No, thank you. They didn't even seem to acknowledge or even even know what I was doing. What about parenting? We get bursts of inspiration. I'm going to do family devotionals every day. So then you plan one, right? You study a little bit. You get some songs ready. You gather the family around, and you try to start singing, and your kids are just going nuts, right? They're running around. They're yelling. You read the Bible story. You ask them, okay, what did we just talk about? And they say, I don't know. And you're like, listen, you little sinners. I did the right thing here, and I don't know why you're treating me like this. We're not doing this. What's the subtext underneath all of these things? It's that I don't deserve this. Because I did the right thing. What I deserve is the right thing. I don't deserve this. 
And the truth is, maybe you don't. But that's not the right way to think about it. Because it's not always about what we deserve. See, look at verse 6. Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. And you're thinking, okay, right? It worked. Jonathan brought up all the good things that David did. David doesn't deserve this. And Saul actually listens. He swears, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. I mean, if you're swearing upon the Lord's lifespan, that's for an eternity, right? He's all good now. Problem swept under the rug. No problem at all. Verse 7, and Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things, and Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. And they all lived happily ever after. It was just a misunderstanding. They just had to remind him about how good things were. Close call. David is safe here for about a minute. And that leads to the second point. Okay, so first the anointed. Even if you're the anointed of God, sometimes you don't get what you think you deserve or even what you do deserve. Second, the absence. The absence, which is about the elephant in the room. If God is for you, Saul, of all people, shouldn't be able to stand against you, right? So what is God going to do about this? Because God has rejected Saul and he's chosen David. So he's going to step in, right, to stop Saul and to help David. Look at verse 8. And there was war again, and David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow so that they fled before him. So first of all, it seems like things are back to normal. And notice that David still goes out and he does his duty. And there's a lesson in here for us, too, okay, before we get into the bigger lesson of this section. But when things aren't going well, sometimes what we do is we stop being faithful. You know, when circumstances aren't right. I know this is true for me, right? When I'm sick, I'm the most selfish person in the world. I don't have time to care about you, my child, right? Like, don't you know that dad is sick? Work is crazy. I can't think about scripture right now. Uh, my future is up in the air. I'm stressed. I'm worrying about that. I can't think about how to serve and fellowship at church. Like, I don't have time for that kind of thing. It's easy to be distracted. Really what it is, is it's easy to live by reaction instead of conviction. So there's something notable about David here. David, he's under a lot of pressure. He doesn't know what Saul is about. I mean, he's back, but he's on guard. But he's still willing to go out and fight these battles on behalf of Saul's throne. Saul is still king. Israel, uh, David is still Israel's top dog. And the Philistines are still around. So David doesn't quit. He doesn't quit on his countrymen. He doesn't say, forget Saul, man. Let him fight if he wants to. I'm out. He knows his responsibility. He's driven by conviction not by reaction. And yet that's not even the main thing that's going on here. There's a reason why I think we're shown verse 8. What we're seeing isn't just that David is still fighting, which is commendable. But what we see is that David is still winning. So if there was any doubt that maybe there was something going on in David's life, that God had abandoned David to defeat. That's not necessarily the case here. This just highlights the contrast even more. The Philistines, the arch enemies of Israel, they're a real threat. They're no problem for David. And yet Saul remains a thorn in his side that he can't shake. And that's what we see in the next uh, couple of verses. It's not just a thorn that Saul wants to be in his side. He wants to throw a spear into him. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord, verse 9, came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand. And David was playing the lyre, as he still did. 
And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall. And David fled and escaped that night. Now, James talked about the harmful spirit last week. We talked about it two weeks ago, too. So I don't want to belabor the point too much. But right here in the text, it says that the spirit is from the Lord. God removed the Holy Spirit from Saul, and he brought upon him a spirit of torment. So Saul is having a hard time internally. But here's what we see. Okay, God is disciplining Saul with the spirit, and yet here, that discipline overflows onto David. David is just playing the liar, being faithful, probably playing one of his psalms of worship to God for all we know. And he finds himself in the splash zone of God's wrath, God's discipline upon Saul. However you think about it, if you were the Lord's anointed, I think you would assume that something like this wouldn't happen. If you want God to show up, you don't think it's going to show up in the form of God disciplining that guy over there so that he goes crazy and unleashes his murderous intent upon you. I mean, David has to bust out his dodgeball skills. He had to move fast to keep from becoming a shish kebab on Saul's spear, and he runs away. And what's interesting about this is that far from there being divine deliverance, it seems like God is doing some, uh, something completely different. He's not helping. You know, I had a friend who used to always call me out for not helping. And it was good for me because I was kind of like a oblivious, kind of uh, inconsiderate person. Maybe I still am. Uh, but she would always be like, hey, help that person. You know, like someone would be carrying like five suitcases and I'd just be walking and being like, minding my own business, right? Living my life. Uh, and then she'd be like, grab one of the suitcases. So I was like, oh, you're right. You're right. Okay. Good. So she taught me a lot just by rebuking me a lot. Um, but the funny thing is, one time, we were, like, trying to go to our, our friend's apartment, and they were doing construction. We had to climb over this, like, concrete fence a little bit. Um, and she was trying to climb over it, and she got stuck, and she needed my help to help her over the fence. All I needed, needed to do was kind of, like, help push her foot over. But I was like, sorry, right? I, I don't touch any women besides my wife, you know what I mean? So I didn't help her yeah, on the fence. She's still there to that day. Um, no, she's okay. Our friendship did take a hit, though, I'll be honest. Um, but I didn't help. I mean, she always called me out for being unhelpful. Now, David doesn't say anything. He doesn't complain. He doesn't even ask. But we're reading this text, and you might think that David, who trusts in God more than anyone in Israel, might be thinking, God, I could use a little help right now. Now, keep this train of thought, verse 11. Hey, David is still on the run. He runs back home. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning. But Michal, David's wife, told him, if you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So David goes home to his wife, Michal, who is uh, Saul's daughter. Michal knows her father as well as Jonathan. She knows that her father is unhinged and that David isn't safe even in their home anymore, verse 12. So Michal let David down through the window, and he fled away and escaped. Now, he's on the run from his own home. He doesn't even have, like, a house to go back to. Michal sets up a diversion, verse 13. Michal set up an image, laid it on the bed, put a pillow of goat's hair at its head, and covered it with clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, is he sick? Or he is sick, excuse me. Now, if you're really thinking about what's going on here, this is low-key kind of hilarious, right? Like, 
Mikhail, she probably like turned on the lamp and like got the thermometer too. Like this is like middle school, like playing hooky from school kind of thing. She takes an image, lays it down in the bed, puts like a goat hair wig on it, and then covers the sheet. Says, "Oh, he's sick." <coughs> now, it is funny, but hold on for a second. If you really think even deeper about it, what's going on is very strange. She takes an image. The text says, "Now, what is that?" Obviously, it's some type of like body-sized thing that you could put in a bed to pretend to be a person. If you look at the Hebrew, it's probably some sort of idol. It's like a false god statue, some kind of pagan thing. So it's super weird that this is in Saul and Michal's house. We'll come back to that in a second, but keep reading. Verse 15, Then Saul sent the messengers to see David, saying, Bring him up to me in the bed, that I may kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed with the pillow of goat's hair at its head. Behold, I know. They pull the covers and they go, Aha, we're going to kill you right now. And it's just like a Buddha statue with like a wig on. Verse 17, Saul said to Michal, Why have you deceived me thus and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? Why are you doing me like this? And Michal answered Saul, he said to me, let me go, why should I kill you? Michal lies. Now, you might be wondering, okay, like, what's up with this? Is it okay to lie if you're going to protect someone else? You might be thinking about other times in the Bible when this shows up, right? Like in Exodus chapter 1, when the midwives, the Hebrew midwives, they lie to protect the babies from the Egyptians to keep them alive. You might think about Rahab who lies to protect the spies, the Israelite spies in Jericho. Is it okay to lie if it's for a good purpose? That's not really what's going on in this text, so I'll talk about it more if we ever preach on Rahab or something like that. Actually, what's going on here is Michal didn't need to lie. And let me show you what I mean. Michal lies for her own self-preservation, which isn't the worst thing in the world, but it demonstrates a few things. One, it demonstrates that in her heart of hearts, she has a lack of faith. She has a lack of faith. Two, it demonstrates that she has a lack of love for her husband, because if you look at what she actually says in the lie, she doesn't say like, oh, he got away before, you know, I could have stopped him or anything like that. She throws him under the bus. She said, he threatened me. I mean, if anything, this pours more fuel on Saul's rage. If she loved David as much as she, uh, she said she did, you'd think there wouldn't be a little bit more self-sacrifice or something. And then, of course, she had that idol in her house. And this actually is an indictment on all of Saul's family. I mean, we know Jonathan is a faithful person, but now we see that Jonathan is a faithful person despite his father. I mean, Michal is someone who is a daughter of the king, and she has a pagan idol in her house. We know David is wholly true to the Lord. That's what the scriptures say. So it's Michal who is not wholly true to the Lord or to David. I mean, you wonder, too, why she didn't even try to escape with David or make plans to meet him somewhere or anything like that. So this isn't really righteous lying. She does help him, but David barely escapes, and now Saul is probably even madder. Now, I want to show you something. Turn with me to Psalm 59. That was our scripture reading today. But this is one of those cool passages where there is a psalm that matches it. You can keep your finger in 1 Samuel 19. But Psalm 59 
I said, right, we don't know what David's thinking or what he's asking, but actually we do. We just don't know it from 1 Samuel 19. But in Psalm 59, if you look at the heading, the subscript, Psalm 59, to the choir master, according to do not destroy a miktam of David, when Saul sent men to watch his house in order to kill him. Now, because there's like a tune and, you know, it's for the choir master, he probably wrote this later when he was at peace. But the situation that he had in mind was this situation in 1 Samuel 19. And this is what he says. He says, deliver me from my enemies. Oh, my God, protect me against those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who work evil and save me from bloodthirsty men. And then look at verse three. For behold, they lie in wait for my life. Fierce men stir up strife against me for no transgression or sin of mine, O Lord, for no fault of mine they run and make ready. I mean, we've been talking about this already. David knows that he's innocent and he knows he's a sinner, I mean, in general, but he didn't do anything to provoke Saul. And then he says, awake, come to meet me and see. It's an interesting thing to say. I mean, he knows, right, that God never sleeps, right? He knows who God is. But what he's saying here is a glimpse into how he's really feeling. He feels like God is a little distant. Almost as if God might be sleeping and he needs to yell out and ask him, Okay, God, any time now would be good. I need help. I'm at my wit's end. Now you could turn back to Psalm 19. Uh, sorry, excuse me, First Samuel 19, our passage. But what we saw in Psalm 59 is that there is a sense in which David feels the absence of God. A sense. So I think it's okay to just ask the question. Through all of this, through Saul's rage and madness, through the thing with Jonathan and Michal, the thing in the throne room, where is God? Where has God been in this passage? Jonathan, yeah, he did stick his neck out and he risked his life. And God, uh, excuse me, Jonathan did save David from Saul for a little bit. Michal, she lied and maybe it wasn't the best, but she did save David. David had to run away a few times on his own legs. So you could say he saved himself. But where is the divine deliverance, the divine intercession that we've come to expect in this book? Where are the earthquakes and the thunder? So far, the only mentions of God, I don't know if you've been looking for mentions of God, but God is barely mentioned in this chapter. So far, the only mentions are in verse 5, where Jonathan talked about how David, uh, God helped David and used him for a great deliverance in the past, okay, with Goliath. Verse uh, 6, in Saul's worthless vow, which he doesn't honor, Okay, as long as the Lord lives. Okay, yeah, right. And then in verse 9, where God sends a harmful spirit upon Saul. If anything, he's reminded that God helped him before, but where is he now? If anything, he's like, God, you're kind of making things harder for me. Can't you just, you know, discipline Saul when I'm not around? Where is God? And we're back to where we started this whole sermon, full, full circle. So many Christians, when the heat goes up, We want to know, where is God? We're looking at our watch and maybe we have faith. We're like, okay, any minute now, God's going to show up. But then the movie starts and it seems like he's late. And according to my timetable, it's too late now, God, and you still haven't shown up. 
And then you read the Bible, right? Because someone tells you to read the Bible and you read about people getting broken out of jail by angels. You read about people receiving their sight who are blind or lame people walking. You read about Jericho. You just got to march around and God's going to bring the walls tumbling down. You see a nation march through a sea on dry ground. And then you look at your life and you're like, now I feel even worse. Where is my divine deliverance? I thought God was for me. I thought no one could stand against me. I thought, God, you would never leave me or forsake me. And yet even when I pray, I don't even feel your presence that close. And I know some people who have walked away from God forever because in that moment, they decided that God must not be real. And this leads to the final point, the advocate, the advocate. Quickly now, the advocate who helps us see who God Helps us see God, excuse me, for who he really is. I call this point the advocate because, three A's, obviously, but because of the 14th chapter of John's gospel. And you don't have to turn there, but in John 14, verse 16, Jesus says that the Father will send you a helper. And in Greek, the original language, it's the term paraclete. And the term paraclete can be translated helper as the ESV does, or in some translations that you might have, the advocate. What is an advocate? An advocate is someone that fights your battles for you, that supports you, that is there for you, that backs you up. David's on the run. He will never serve Saul directly again. He has no job, no home. He can't go to Bethlehem, right? Because then he put his own family in danger. Where can he go? Who can he turn to? David has a genius plan. He's going to go to Ramah because who lives in Ramah? Verse 18. Now David fled and escaped and he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and lived at Nioth. So he goes to the prophet who started this whole thing, the guy who anointed him and anointed Saul. And Samuel, the man of God, takes him in. This is a good plan that there's one man on earth who can stand up to Saul without fear. It's Samuel. If there's one man on earth who can tell him, okay, what's going on with God? How come God isn't helping me out? It's Samuel, if there's one person who can make it all go away, it's Samuel. Verse 19. And it was told Saul, behold, David is at Nioth and Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying and Samuel standing as head over them, the spirit of God, the advocate, came upon the messengers of Saul and they also prophesied. Now, Saul isn't afraid of Samuel. He should be. But he's too far gone to respect Samuel's authority. He's crazy. He sends some cronies to get David. But when they show up to pick David up, right? There's no one to defend David. The Spirit of God intervenes and causes them to prophesy. Now, this is weird, but keep reading. When it was told Saul, told to Saul, he sent other messengers and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they also prophesied. It happens three times. And this is very strange. And if you want to know what's going on here, remember James talked about this last week. But the word for prophesy is the same word for the word for raving. When Saul was raving, you know, he was kind of going uh, in a trance, like not in his right mind. Okay, so something here is, is beyond just maybe like just giving a prophecy, but they're kind of taken into a different like ecstatic experience. It's not a normal thing. After three failures, Saul, Saul decides he's going to do it right himself, verse 22. Then he himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that is in Siku, and he asked, where are Samuel and David? 
And of course, they give him up because they're scared of Saul. And one said, Behold, they're at Nioth and Ramah. And he went there to Nioth and Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Nioth and Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel, and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus, it is said, is Saul also among the prophets. Finn, right? End of chapter. Now, I couldn't think of a weirder ending for 1 Samuel 19 than this. I thought the Spirit of God left Samuel and came upon David. I thought he left him for good. I thought the Spirit wouldn't help him anymore. And isn't this like when Saul was first anointed king, when things were good? How come he's prophesying and people are like saying the same thing? Is Saul also a prophet? This is super weird. And yet it's not without precedent. Okay, if you remember Numbers, uh, the end of the book of Numbers, I know you guys, it's your favorite book. But at the end of Numbers, there's a guy who shows up named Balaam. You might know this story. He's not the most popular person in the Bible, uh, not the most well-known, but you might know him. He's a little obscure, but you might know him. Balaam is this guy who has a connection to God in some way. And Israel is moving toward the promised land, and they're passing by Moab. And the king of Moab is scared of Israel because Israel just keeps dominating all their enemies because God is with them. So the king of Moab decides to go to Balaam, hire him, and say, curse Israel for me. Okay, we can't fight them physically, but maybe we can defeat them on the spiritual plane. Right? We can curse them. So all this stuff happens. There's like a donkey that talks, all these random things. You should check it out for yourself. I think numbers like 22, 23 are right around there. Um, but what happens is Balaam finally goes with them, and he looks out like over the camp of where Israel is, and the king of Moab says, do your thing, right? Curse them. You're a spiritual guy. You're a powerful guy in the spiritual world. So Balaam opens up his mouth, and what comes out is blessing. He says, Israel is so great. Praise God. You know, like, protect them. And the king of Moab is like, what is wrong with you, man? I pay you the big bucks to do the exact opposite. And what Balaam says, even though Balaam is not a good guy, he says, I have to say what God gives me. The Spirit of God hijacked Balaam's vocal cords and made him bless instead of curse. And what we see through the entire story of Balaam is that the Spirit of God does whatever he wants. He can control you. He can take over a person. He takes over Saul. See, sometimes you live for God. This is the flip side of what we talked about in the first point. Sometimes you live for God and he leads you into hardship. And here's the funny thing. Sometimes you don't live for God. You're a bad guy, and God still uses you for his purpose. Sometimes you live for God. He leads you into hardships. Sometimes you don't, and he uses you for his purpose. And this is why we can't live by results or by reaction. We must live by conviction. We must live by what is right. We have to stop talking about things merely in terms of either or. Sometimes you are the most faithful person, and your business never takes off. Sometimes you're the most evil person and you get super, super rich. Sometimes your church is whack and you have the most success and a lot of people come to faith. Sometimes you have a faithful church and nothing happens fruit-wise. You don't always know. And this leads to the flip side of what happened in point two. What's going on here? David was in danger then because of God's discipline of Saul, right? I talked about the splash zone. Now David is protected because of God's blessing upon Saul. Isn't it interesting? You can't make this up. When God does decide to intervene, he doesn't just turn David into another Samson. He doesn't take a donkey bone and beat up Saul. 
Instead, he allows Saul to prophesy once again. You would never expect this, but that's what God does. And it makes you question, maybe God has been pulling the strings all along. Maybe God has been involved. I mean, we know he's sovereign. We know that. But it's just maybe the text has been telling us that, and we've just skipped over it, or maybe I skipped over it. Look at verse 2 again. Jonathan says, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. David knows that Jonathan is Saul's son, okay? That's pretty obvious at this point. Why does Jonathan emphasize that? Because you'd expect a son to be loyal to his father, the king. But Jonathan is saying, look, my father wants to kill you, but I've chosen you. I'm on your side. Mikal, for all her flaws, it's the same thing. When the text talks about her, instead of calling her Saul's daughter, it calls her David's wife. The loyalty, when push comes to shove, tips in David's direction. God has been allowing close calls to happen, but he's allowed David to escape at the same time. And it reminds me of this joke that I told before. I'll tell it kind of a different version. But there was a pastor who was caught up in a fire in his building. And he told himself, don't worry, okay? God will save you. And the police come by. The first people to arrive on the scene and they say, jump, right? Like jump over the flames and we'll catch you, right? We'll help you get out of there before it gets too crazy. And he says, don't worry, God is going to save me. So then the fire truck shows up and they have like a ladder, right? They can like get to him. He's like climbing up to the second floor. They say, just come down. You don't even have to jump. Just climb down the ladder. And he says, no, 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 God is going to save me. Don't worry. Right. And then he climbs up onto the roof and they actually send a helicopter to come get him because they know that this guy's in a burning building. And they say, just climb up onto this rope ladder. And he says, don't worry about saving me. God will save me. Then, of course, the fire just keeps burning. And then the building collapses. And Pastor so-and-so dies. And he goes to heaven, which, you know, it's a good ending, right? He's happy in heaven. But then he talks to God and he says, hey, I just have one question. Right? I believe that you're going to save me. How come you didn't save me? Right? And he said, dude, okay, God doesn't talk like that. But he's like... My son, right? I sent a police car. I sent a fire truck. I even sent a helicopter to save you. And you get the point. God has been protecting David through means. Is David dead? No. David is still alive. David will still sit on the throne. God has been with them. And it's more than that. If you flip back just a couple chapters to 1 Samuel 16, when David is first anointed, if you look at verse 13, then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah from that day forward. God wasn't just protecting David. God was with David. See, God doesn't promise that things are always going to be good around us. What God promised David is that he would be with him through it all. That's why David could write things like Psalm 23. He said, even if I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. He didn't say, because you are with me, I'll never have to walk through any valleys. You see? And then even Psalm 59, he said, awake, God, where are you? But where he ends the psalm, he says, but I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning, for you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. 
Oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you, for you, O oh God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. We'll close here. I heard this story about this World War I soldier um, a long time ago. I think it's like an old, it's like from an old Boy Scout thing. So I'm not totally sure it's true, but it's a good story. Uh, the soldier, he had been drafted along with a lifelong friend, and they fought on the same front, in the same trenches. Remember World War I? It was trench warfare. And uh, they were, the battle wasn't going good, okay? So they're trying to get back to their trench, trying to get into the safety of being below. And he sees his lifelong friend get hit by a bullet and fall on the field. So he jumps into the trench, uh, and he talks to his commanding officer, and he says, look, we gotta go, I got to go back and get my friend. He said, let me go. And, and, you know, between the two trenches, it's crazy, right? There's smoke, there's bullets flying. They call it no man's land. I mean... At this point, now that they've retreated, it's suicide. You can't go out there. So his lieutenant says, don't. Right? Don't go. Right? We've already lost people. Your, your friend's probably already dead. Like, I'm sorry to say that, but I don't want you to die as well. But he insisted. He's like, look, you know, I need to go. This is my friend. So his lieutenant relents, and he's like, okay, just be careful out there. And the soldier climbed up and ran off, and miraculously he made it to his friend, and he slung his body over his shoulder, and he brought him back to the safety of the trench, and the lieutenant took one look at him and said, I told you, right? Even though he let him go, but he said, I told you, look, your friend is already dead and you're bleeding out. It wasn't worth it. But the soldier looked at him and said, no, it was worth it, sir. And he said, what do you mean? You're both dead, basically. And the soldier said, yes, sir, but it was worth it because when I got to my friend, he saw me and he said, I knew you'd be there for me. And that's it. See, you might say, Jesse, right? I, I'm not David. I'm not the Lord's anointed. What guarantee do I have that God's going to be with me? Even if David had to go through this, how can I know that God will be with me through my trials and my temptations and my suffering? I'm not especially loved like he was. But if you're a Christian, you are. This is your story. In fact, your story is even better. Not only were you in danger of dying or even in the process of dying, you were dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in a grave of your own making. It was your own fault. But God, who is rich in mercy because of the steadfast love with which he loved us, sent his son not just to risk his life, but to give his life as a ransom for many. If you're a Christian, a ransom for you. See, Christian, you and I, we are that friend. And God is the one who is willing to go, to leave his throne, to come down into this pigsty of a world, to die on a cross for our sins, to be there for us. It doesn't mean that bad things will never happen. It doesn't mean that death itself can't reach us. We are all destined to die. Spoiler alert, David eventually died. But what does it mean? It means that he will be there for us. We know it because he already paid the price. So whatever your situation, whatever you're going through, whatever you're feeling, if you are a believer, God is with you. The cross is the sign that he will never stand you up. God is for you. God is doing something. He is there. Will you pray with me? <clears throat> Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand this. 
God, not that we would presume upon your presence. And God, I do pray for those who don't know you here, that they would turn to you in faith, that they would know that reconciliation and your presence is possible in Christ and what he did on the cross. I pray that they would repent of their sins and give themselves to you. But I pray for the believers here in this room, God. I pray, God, that those who are suffering, who are struggling with doubt, who are going through something, God, I pray that they would know that your presence is there with them. God, sometimes you don't change our situation. You don't take away the thorn in our flesh. But you tell us that your grace is sufficient. And God, help us to know that grace is what we don't deserve. So God, we look to you. We pray, God, that you would be honored. We pray this in the Christ's name.